Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On November 11th, the nation will celebrate another Veterans Day, which is officially designated as a public celebration to honor those who have served and defended the United States by enlisting or being drafted into the armed services. These individuals have demonstrated their patriotism, love of country, and willingness to serve and sacrifice for the common good. The date of this celebration results from the end of World War I in uh, 1918 and intends to honor U.S. veterans and the victims of all wars. Loss in these celebrations is the history surrounding the tragic military service of African-Americans who were forced to bravely fight the war against enemies of the United States and at the same time against racist forces within this country. Oftentimes, both wars resulted in their deaths and or serious bodily injuries to those who served. Such was the reality of Private Booker Spicer an African-American army truck driver who was stationed at Camp Butner in 1944. On July 8th of that year, Private Spicely, dressed in his U.S. Army uniform, along with three others, boarded a Duke Power Company bus in the Haytai section of Durham and sat in seats in next to the last row of the bus. After the bus reached the white Five Points community and whites entered the bus, Spicely and his group were ordered by the driver, permanently counseled, to move to the last row of the bus, a practice which was prompted by the Jim Crow rules that required African-Americans to move to the back of the bus. Spicely initially refused to move from his seat, but later complied. When he and his group exited the bus, he was confronted by the bus driver, who then shot him to death at the intersection of Fourth and Club Boulevard. Counsel was subsequently arrested, prosecuted, but was found not guilty by an all-white jury after deliberating for a mere 28 minutes. Spicer's death, resulting from the back of the bus edict of that day was just one of many death experiences for African-American soldiers in the United States as they fought against Jim Crow and the racial rules which governed the country at that time. Tonight, we will discuss Booker Spicely's death and those of other African-Americans who met the same fate. Joining us for this discussion are two members of the Booker, Booker Spicely's committee that is promoting the erection and placing 
of a public monument to honor his life and to educate the community about similar atrocities which occurred around the country. Attorney James Williams, the former public defender in Orange and Chatham counties, chairs this group. And he is joined by the esteemed author, researcher, historian, and senior professor at the uh, Duke University Center for Documentary Studies, Tim Tyson. Thanks to uh, both of you for uh, joining us this evening for, for this discussion. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Well, let us just start this discussion uh, with each of you kind of explaining to uh, our audience why and how you became involved in this effort to create a monument for private book of spices. So Jim, since you are the uh, chair of the group, we'll start uh, with you and then we'll go to Tim. Um, so who are you starting with? You. Um, okay, so yes. Well, I uh, became involved in this. And again, thanks for inviting us to be a part of this uh, conversation as we approach um, this uh, holiday. Um, <clears throat> I became involved in this effort as a result of some work that I was doing uh, in Orange County, uh, particularly the um, anniversary of the uh, journey of reconciliation. Um, which, uh, which took place um, in um, 1947. And when that, 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 that bus or the Freedom Rides of 1947, and one of the places that bus stopped was uh, Chapel Hill. And um, several of the riders uh, who were on the bus when the bus stopped in Chapel Hill were uh, confronted by basically an angry mob, but several of them were arrested and eventually prosecuted and, and sentenced, uh, uh, convicted and sentenced to the chain gang uh, as a result of their efforts simply to ride a bus uh, as they were permitted to under the constitution of the laws of, of this country. Uh, one of those people who were arrested was, uh, was Bay arrested. Uh, the attorney, uh, of the two attorneys who represented them, they were both black attorneys, uh, both at the trial court level and the appellate court level. One of those attorneys was CJ Gates. And so when we did a program uh, at the Orange County Courthouse uh, related to the journey of reconciliation, I, I focused on the role of the black attorneys in representing freedom riders who were, uh, you know, charged uh, in, uh, in, in their efforts uh, to ride without having to ride Jim Crow. And in the course of doing some work uh, uh, on C.J. Gates, uh, I became aware that um, he, he had been involved in several other efforts regarding bus transportation and segregation. Uh, one involving a woman, a black woman, who in the late 1930s had refused to give up her seat on a Durham public bus 
and had been arrested. Uh, he represented her. She was convicted uh, in the trial court. He took the case up to the North Carolina Supreme Court and prevailed. I also became aware that um, in uh, 1944, uh, he served as private prosecutor uh, regarding the death of a soldier by the name of Booker T. Spicely, uh, who was in uniform uh, and shot and killed by a white bus driver uh, in, in, uh, in Durham. Uh, and he um, was involved in that case uh, also. Um, and of course, when looking at, that's when I first became aware of Booker T. Spicely as, as far as I can remember. And in looking at, the, at that tragedy and what happened and the response of the system, uh, you know, broadly speaking, uh, or lack of response in, in a significant way, it led me to think that we needed to do something now to uh, uh, shine some light on Private Spicely uh, and um, his involvement, his standing up for right and basically sacrificing his life uh, while in uniform and while supposedly fighting for you know democracy or helping support the fight for democracy across across the world. So that's how you know in a nutshell how I uh, got involved and decided to bring together a group of like-minded people to give some thought to what we should do. And so we end up with uh, people like Tim Tyson and Irv Joyner and um, uh, Walter Jackson and Gretchen Engel and Philip Penn as part of the Booker T. Spicely Working Group. And uh, Tim, you all the way over there at uh, Duke uh, University. Uh, how did you get involved uh, in this and why? In the 1990s, I came across Booker T. Spicely's murder um, when I was doing some research on World War II and race politics during World War II, we often, uh, World War II is often described as the good war. And there's an image that everyone was pulling together uh, equally uh, in this uh, war against fascism. When really World War II was a time of great ferment and protest uh, with African-Americans. We, in, uh, for World War I, much of the Black leadership had called on uh, Black Americans to set aside their special grievances uh, and to support the war effort. And the idea was we will win democracy uh, by our participation in World War I. What they actually, what happened was after in the wake of World War I, we saw a wave of lynching, a deepening of Jim Crow, a really a, the rise of a massive millions of members uh Ku Klux Klan it was exactly the opposite of that so there people like a Philip Randolph uh who had been around for World War One in that in that era uh from the beginning of, of even before we got into World War II where uh Randolph was uh, organized the March on Washington movement which uh pushed and won uh by threatening to march on Washington that got uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt to issue Executive Order 8802, which uh, banned racial discrimination in the Army and in the defense industries. 
in jobs, which uh, though it didn't have the kind of enforcement teeth that it should have had, nonetheless probably doubled uh, the number of defense jobs that uh, black workers got. And that was uh, really, you know, in 1941. And they kept meeting across the uh, all the wartime years. There was all manner of protest. Uh, people call the double V campaigns, which were led by black newspapers here in Durham, Lewis Austin and the Carolina Times would, uh, you know, had a, on the masthead had, you know, uh, defeat Hitler and Mussolini by enforcing the Constitution, uh, and and fight uh, fight fascism here and abroad. So uh, uh, black newspapers were calling for protest and engaging in protest uh, all during the war against racial discrimination and violence. There were a lot of violent incidents uh, and many deaths of black soldiers around uh, military camps because of, of white Southern control of Congress, uh, the 80% of the military camps that were built were built in the South. And, you know, these little Southern towns with a, all of a sudden a military base with African-American soldiers in large numbers uh, who were, you know, trained and uniformed and uh, weren't in the mood to be treated as second-class citizens. There were, a, there were a lot of protests and a lot of uh, murders, not unlike what happened to uh, Booker T. Spicely. So, um, you know, one thing just for context is that, you know, the buses from Camp Butner to Durham, Durham was where the black soldiers at Camp Butner went to, you know, get the clothes cleaned or have a good time or get a, get a meal or go to church. Uh, and the bus, the load on the bus system was very high and the bus system was get, filling the bus up with white folks and letting black folks just sit and wait at the bus stop for the next bus uh, and things like that. And, and uh, the black soldiers were from all over the United States. And, and uh, some of them once uh, turned a bus over on its side because they were, the bus driver was insisting that uh, white folks would get all the seats on it. You know, the, the Utilities Commission in North Carolina wrote to the governor in 1943 and complained that it was utterly impossible to enforce the segregation statutes on the bus because people were just ignoring them in large numbers. So you have to see Booker T. Spicely's protest on the bus as part of a larger movement of people who were pointing to the hypocrisy of fighting uh, you know, white supremacy and fascism around the world uh, with a Jim Crow army and, and in a racial caste system that ruled these communities around the training camps. So, uh, you know, he was far from the only person. And when we honor Booker T. Spicely's sacrifice, we're really honoring the ongoing struggle of people who believe in a multiracial uh, democracy in this country. Uh, and that to me, you know, was what I was struck by. Also, it's a very interesting uh, uh, case there was Spicely was being he, being ordered to uh, go to the back of the bus uh, stood and he was disputing this and suddenly two white soldiers got on in uniform and he turned to them and said aren't I wearing the same uniform that you are wearing uh, aren't I as good to stop a bullet 
as you are? Aren't we supposed to be fighting for democracy? This man says, I have to go to the back of the bus. And the white soldiers did an interesting thing. They went to the back of the bus and sat in the colored section. And Spicely, you know, finished his conversation quickly with the bus driver and went back to sit with them and talk about, I don't know what. We, you know, that was not, we don't know what, but uh, I, I wish I had been a fly on the wall to hear what it was was said. But when, and then Spicely, when he gets up to leave the bus, he's at the back. And in this kind of theater of the bus, he speaks across the, the crowded bus and says, sir, if I've offended you in any way by what I've said, I apologize. And then got off the back of the bus. Uh, and then uh, the driver who was in the habit of driving drunk, incidentally, uh, ran over and, and shot him dead. Uh, well, let me just, just ask the, the both of you, uh, how widespread uh, were uh, these uh, efforts that resulted in the uh, death of uh, African-Americans who were in uh, uniform uh, at the time? And I see that uh, it's time for, our, for us to take our first break. So uh, rum, rum, ruminate on that. For a second, we're going to take our break. I uh, want uh, those of you who are listening to stay with us as we continue this discussion about uh, Private uh, Booker Spicely and uh, his death that occurred here uh, in Durham. So hang on and we'll be right back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I am a current third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. Voting season is among us, and I would like to give you some information about voting in North Carolina. In order to register to vote, you must, one, be a U.S. citizen, two, be at least 18 years old on day of election, three, live in the county in which you are registering and have lived there for 30 days prior to the general election, and four, not be incarcerated or have any felony convictions. If you are not registered to vote, you must go to an early polling site in order to do same-day registration. For same-day registration, you need one of the following, a North Carolina driver's license, a photo ID from a government agency, or a copy of one of the following that shows the name and address of the voter, a current utility bill, bank statement, government check, paycheck, or other government documents. Additional information on voting and early registration can be found at www.dcovoted.com. One of the voting sites is the North Carolina Central University School of Law, which is located at 640 Nelson Street, Durham, NC 27707. If you're already registered or head to the polls on Election Day, which is November 8th. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Uh, thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this uh, discussion with uh, attorney uh, James Williams, who is the chair 
of the uh, Booker Spicely uh, Committee that seeks to uh, promote the erection and placing of a public monument uh, in his uh, in his honor, as well as uh, Dr. Tim Tyson from the uh, Duke University Center for Documentary uh, Studies. And we are talking about the uh, uh, situation faced by uh, African-Americans who were uh, in uniform and uh, confronting racism uh, during the uh, Jim Crow days uh, throughout the South, oftentimes leading to uh, their deaths. And uh, as we took our break, uh, we raised the uh, question of just how widespread uh, these incidents were uh, around the country during that time. In light of the fact that uh, uh, most of the training grounds and camps uh, for the military were uh, located in the uh, in the South. So uh, uh, James, you want to start us off uh, yes. with, uh, with, 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 with that discussion. Right. Uh, happy to. And so, you know, <clears throat> one thing I, I want to bring to the attention, uh, of your listeners is the fact that just a week ago, um, you know, historian Matthew Delma's book, Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad uh, was, was published. It's a groundbreaking work that I think for the first time in one volume captures the essence of the history uh, that black soldiers uh, and military personnel encountered when they uh, attempted to, uh, you know, fight to save democracy. So one way of looking at it is they had to fight for the right to fight for this country. And this is something that Mr. Delmont lays out in his book. The other thing that I think is important to note is that while a number of these military installations where uh, these soldiers and others were set uh, for, for training, were located in the South, and clearly a number of them suffered all kinds of abuse and assaults and threats uh, and humiliation. Um, the people who were in charge of the system, I mean, I'm talking the War Department, I'm talking other folks, supported Jim Crow. So, I mean, I think the blame is not simply that these installations were located at the South because clearly the government itself supported these policies that made it uh, dangerous for uh, you know, black uh, servicemen and women uh, to be a part of, of this World War II effort. Uh, and so, it is not. It was not unusual that uh, that soldiers be uh, attacked, be shot, be killed, and a number of those are um, the subject of a, another book by hands now known of Margaret Burnham, who talks about the fact that uh, soldiers in uniform were quite often the target of racial violence and intimidation. The mere fact that a black person would have the audacity 
to don a uniform sort of brought out the worst in and uh, and you know racist and racism um, in America. So it wasn't uncommon. It wasn't unusual. But it wasn't just the assaultive behavior of uh, of individual. Uh, you know, this white supremacist that threatened the lives of these black uh, service people. I mean, you can look at an incident like, um, you know, that at Court Chicago, which was on the West Coast, I believe near San Francisco, where you had a Jim Crow structure that uh, basically allowed and promoted and encouraged and forced black uh, 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 people at that uh, facility to handle a dangerous explosives without any guidance, without any instruction, uh, and often in a competitive environment, whereas, you know, as if it was some game as opposed to something that was really dangerous. End result was, you know, over 200 or so people, mostly Black, were killed in a major explosion at, port, uh, at that facility. How did the War Department respond? By saying to those, the few who survived, that we want you to go right back out and start doing this work. Well, these men were traumatized. A few of them said no. And because they said no, they were court-martialed. Some um, sentenced to long terms of imprisonment. Others threatened with a uh, death and that brought third and this mind you was june july 17 1944 so this was just a week or so after because private spicely was shot and killed july 8th of 1944 so this is just another of a hundred or so stories of mistreatment and death of black soldiers uh, during World War II, both before and, and during World War II. Uh, so in answer to your question, it was uh, pretty commonplace. Yes, and there, were, there was a lot of wartime racial conflict, white mob violence uh, in communities across the country. Uh, Charles Johnson, sociologist at Fisk, counted 247 racial clashes in uh, 47 different cities in 1943 alone. Uh -huh. um, so, and then, you know, the one thing that the, the confusion of, of the government is partly because they're engaged in a worldwide political struggle. The world is, you know, has a majority of, of darker skinned peoples and the United States and the, uh, the West End, the allied powers are, are, uh, battling against Germany with its uh, racial hierarchy system and Japan with a slightly different but but similar uh, racial hierarchy. And so that puts the allies in an awkward position of having to declare themselves in favor of universal democracy and equal citizenship when their, their uh, countries reflected nothing of the kind. Uh, and this gave Black Americans considerable leverage and, you know, a. Philip Randolph says in 1943, the problem of the Negro in the United States is no longer a purely domestic question, but has world significance. We have become the barometer of democracy to the colored peoples of the world. 
and the Germans were airdropping leaflets across North Africa, uh, where they're co competing with uh, the West for influence among darker skinned people. They're, they're dropping uh, leaflets that have pictures of lynchings uh, and, and depictions of police brutality. The Japanese are doing the same. Uh, basically, the Japanese are saying to the peoples of Asia, do you think, look, do you think these people, the way they treat their own people of color, you think they really mean to, for you to have democracy? Um, so it was, uh, that was one of the central struggles uh, and, and central problems of the government during the war. So, uh, you know, people like Randolph uh, used that for leverage to protest and protest during the war was, was quite common. And that's, you know, uh, that created a lot of violence. And I, I think it would safe, be safe to say that dozens of black soldiers were murdered near training camps across the South. Um, you know, this is, you know, when we talk about um, protest and, and progress in this country, most folks will think about, you know, the, the 50s and the 60s and, and this history, uh, particularly surrounding our veterans is not as well known. And, you know, Irv was talking about in his intro, and both of you have hit upon this as well, which is the Black soldiers who served, served with pride and confidence and, you know, wanted to give to this country um, and, and came back, right? Even, you know, regardless of whether they were just serving kind of domestically or went overseas, that that pride and confidence um, infused how they lived. And without a doubt, you know, that gave rise to consternation on the part of white people who would have preferred to see black men and women remain docile. Um, one of the things that when we think about the history of this country and, and progress, we know that we had the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but one of the consequences of having these soldiers kind of fight and then coming back home, many of whom found themselves in the South where the right to vote was being suppressed. They fought for the right to vote and galvanized the community. Can you two both talk about the importance of the fight to vote during that time period and the role that soldiers played, uh, particularly where you know the airing of this is just a couple of days before the midterm election? So could I, I just want to mention something real quickly here, and then you know, um, I'll, I'll listen to what Tim has to say to your question. But I think it is worth noting that one of the powerful voices, as well, you know, two of the powerful voices as it relates to this whole effort uh, of of the right uh, of the uh, you know black people to serve in the military and to serve honorably in the military. You know, one um, is uh, one is Thurgood Marshall, another is Charles Hamilton Houston, yes. who actually was in the military, who he served as an advisor uh, to, I believe, President, uh, some commission President Roosevelt had set up to address issues of race and racism in the military. He eventually stepped down because he was so frustrated and disappointed with the lack of progress. But I mentioned 
uh, 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 them and Thurgood in particular, because I think it was in um, 1944, around about the same time that Smith versus Allwright was decided the case in uh, Texas that said the all white primaries were quote, unconstitutional. So here again, you have uh, you know, Thurgood Marshall. I know he wasn't by himself, but he was fighting on all these fronts. He was defending the right of black people to serve honorably in the military. But at the same time, he's dealing with voter rights issues. He's dealing with school desegregation and equalization of pay and all of those. So they were all, I think, critically um, important. And it is, it is true. I mean, when you have people uh, coming from, um, from the military, from the war in 1944 in particular, who had been sent overseas to risk their lives to make the world safe for democracy, knowing, I mean, they knew that they were not afforded democracy in their own country. And so they did come back um, with this notion that we're gonna fight for it here at home uh, also. And so you had a number of people who came back, you know, you know we're talking about the South, who came back, wore their uniforms uh, proudly and became involved or more involved in organizations like the NAACP and other groups who were, you know, supporting um, the right uh, to vote and trying to move that forward. And we know some of those and some of them uh, were, were killed also, if not for their service in the military, you know, for their taking positions as it re relates to Medgar Evers comes to mind, for instance. Yeah. Uh, but there are a number of others. Um, so, um, Tim, I know you've got more to add to that question. Um, North Carolina's own Ella Baker became the national director of branches of the NAACP in 1943 and was that for, from 43 to 46. During the war, when she, when she was uh, organizing in the South, the membership of the NAACP went up a thousand percent, tenfold. Uh, Smith versus Allwright, as you mentioned, you know, the white primary was how the Democratic Party defined the primary as a private uh, enterprise, something that was just like your mother's garden club or something, you know, just something <laughs> they were not allowed to let other people participate in. And, but of course, in the all, in the solid South, the Democratic primary was the election. So mm -hmm. it, that was the most, most, the strongest legal means of blocking black Southerners from voting. And Thurgood Marshall, who's, you know, whose uh, work struck down uh, the white primary in 1944 um, said that was his most important case that he ever won in his career. Uh, and he won, you know, Brown v. Board, among others. But uh, so, so, and then from, from when uh, in 40, from 46 to 48, uh, World War II, Black World War II veterans came home and led voter registration campaigns that in only two years increased the black vote in the South from uh, 250,000 to a million. That's a, you know, 
a very large in only two years, and that was spearheaded by uh, Black veterans coming home to the South and being unwilling to accept second-class citizenship. Mm -hmm. And of course, well, let me, you know, it, yeah, in, in light of, of, of all that, how successful have your efforts been thus far in uh, promoting the notion of the uh, public monument uh, for uh, private uh, Spicelet uh, in uh, Durham? And uh, what is the status of that campaign? Okay, so, so, uh, so a couple of things. So part of what, I mean, I think when this working group came together, I think it was one thing that we, we agreed upon early, and that is that we would seek uh, the, um, the erection of a state historic marker in honor of Booker Spicely. And so we set about doing uh, that work um, and that application. The, uh, so the state historical marker, there is a committee of uh, learned people, uh, mostly historians, I think, that meets periodically to decide you know, whether or not an application for a state historical marker is approved. Um, that committee next meets uh, December 16, I believe. Our state historical marker application for private uh, Booker Spicely was submitted to that committee about, um, I don't know, three weeks or three or four weeks ago. Um, so, so if that is approved, it would be sometime next year, probably uh, summer or so at the earliest before that marker would be uh, erected. Our hope was to put it, to have it erected at the intersection where the killing of, of Private Spicely uh, took place there in the Walltown neighborhood there um, at um, West um, uh, Club. Uh, Club Boulevard. And it was 4th Street. I forget the name of the accurate name, the name. Is of it Berkeley? No, yeah, uh, yeah, I think Berkeley uh, at, at, at that intersection. It may have to go closer to another, um, a little ways down because it may have to be put on a state maintained road. So, but that marker uh, is just one of the things that we're hoping uh, to see. There are some other things, some other pieces of our effort that are ongoing including conversations with Duke Energy. I mean, it was mentioned that the bus uh, on which um, uh, Private uh, Spicely was riding was a Durham municipal bus, but it was owned and operated by what was then Duke Power. Uh, Duke Power uh, employed uh, no, uh, uh, Herman Council, the person who killed uh, 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 Private Spicely, they kept him on the job. They, you know, once Spicely uh, was charged in the homicide of, of Private Spicely, uh, Duke uh, Power made sure that they provided his bail so that he would not have to remain in jail. They provided for his defense. They kept him on the job uh, and kept him on the job after the, the trial. And so Duke Energy, uh, we feel, 
uh, is uh, implicit in a major way in the, the harm, the tragedy that took place uh, on uh, uh, July 8th of 1944. So we're in conversation with them about how they can uh, reckon or atone uh, for their role in this and exactly what that looks like, um, you know, you know we're, we're in conversation with. So, um, so those things are still ongoing and there are a lot of possibilities, but, um, but certainly the state historical marker, I think, um, might be the first um, thing that is sort of put up, uh, you know, in honor of, of, of Booker Spicely. All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about Booker Spicely, who was murdered in Durham, North Carolina in July 1944. He was a soldier and he was protesting the Jim Crow requirement that he be moved to the back of the bus. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Attorney James Williams, the former public defender in Orange and Chatham counties. And he also chairs the Booker Spicely Committee that is promoting for the erection and placement of a public monument honoring his life. Also with us is esteemed author, researcher, historian, and senior professor at Duke University Center of Documentary Studies, Timothy Tyson. We're gonna take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. We're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with our guest about Booker Spicely, who was murdered in July 1944 when he refused, at least initially, to move to the back of the bus while he was here in Durham, North Carolina. We have been talking with James Williams. He is the chair of the Booker Spicely Committee that is promoting the placement of a public monument in his honor. Also on that committee is Timothy Tyson, who joins us in this discussion. He is a researcher, historian, and senior professor at Duke University Center for Documentary Studies. 
Um, right before the break, James, you were talking about the work of the committee and the efforts that are being made. Um, thank you for that. Tim, can you talk about the public's response? What have other organizations who have interest in promoting justice and equity and civil rights, what has been their response to the efforts of the Booker-Spicely Committee? I don't remember ever seeing the range of civic groups uh, supporting anything really that we've seen supporting this monument to Booker T. Spicely. It's a, a really a, a uh, who's who of organizations in Durham and state organizations uh, supporting this. It's been a remarkable groundswell of support. Um, so that that's uh, James Williams has done a really good job as our sort of lead organizer and, and chair, but uh, people have been very responsive. Can you talk about what is it about this particular um, case? And, and of course, we know, as you all have mentioned, you know, unfortunately, this was not a unique occurrence. Um, and, you know, what is it about this particular instance that has caused folks to come together? Is this is it this particular moment in time, kind of the, you know, um, following the events of of uh, George Floyd, of course, who was murdered in 2020? Um, is it that this is an election year? What is it about the circumstances right now that has caused groups and other individuals to really get behind this effort, particularly considering it happened in 1944 and this history and this information has always been available? So, you know, so a couple of things from my perspective. Um, you know, the, the information to some extent has been available, but, you know, I don't think anyone had, had looked into it and put it front and center, uh, you know, in the past decade or two to the Durham community and said, look, you know, we need to bring attention to this and there needs to be some response. Um, but I think you're right also in the sense that when we look at, you know, what was happening, particularly, you know, in that moment in 2020, when you had uh, the killing of, 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 of George Floyd and, and Ahmaud Arbery and, 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 and others, uh, there came this moment where people said, uh, and how long it may have lasted or will last is up to debate, but there was a moment when people said we need to have a racial rec reckoning uh, in terms of, of, of our racial past. And I think uh, this, when you think about what happened, uh, this was a bus driver, a civilian who felt comfortable executing a man in public view and then calmly getting back on that bus and continuing his route as if nothing had happened. Um, and so it, it does, it's sort of reminiscent of, you know, when you think about how calmly and coolly the officer who sat on the knee, on the neck of George, you know, he wasn't concerned about anything in the world. When you think about the killers of Arbery, they felt very comfortable. Yes. 
you know, and that the, you know, the structure, the system and their righteousness and their white supremacist attitude. And so I think there's that connection also. And I think uh, when we think about that, those things, I think people can relate to that, uh, the, the connection, you know, between the then and, and the now, uh, I think is one reason that, that made the reaction so, uh, so, so significant here. And, and I just add a couple of things to what Tim was saying in terms of the support. So, you know, uh, you know, the Durham, the, the Durham mayor's office, the, the city of Durham, has, has uh, submitted a resolution in support of this. You've got people like uh, G.K. Butterfield, uh, David uh, Price, Floyd McKissick. Uh, you know, uh, you've got six or seven of the best historians in the state of North Carolina sending letters of support, uh, you know, including, uh, you know, my friend uh, Tim Tyson. Uh, uh, I mean, he, he, you know, is a part of this effort. And so, uh, and not only that, uh, you've got people within the neighborhood. The, some of the strongest letters are residents of the Wallowtown neighborhood who said, we want to see the state historical marker because we want our children. You know, we may not have known, but we want to make sure that our children know that this too is a part of America. And so I think there were there were those factors that led to this moment where we got this groundswell uh, of support, um, you know, for this uh, the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People, the George H. White Bar, and just a number of other organizations have uh, weighed in in support of this effort. Well, how how important is this uh, uh, knowledge about this uh, event? Uh, that uh, that uh, occurred with uh, Spicy in 1944 and its meaning uh, to uh, political participation today uh, since we are uh, headed uh, to, uh, to the polls on, uh, on Tuesday. Uh, what is the importance of uh, this uh, history uh, to the uh, urgency of people getting out to vote? Uh, Tim, you wanted to speak well, to that? Yeah. I see a, a growing recognition across the country of an understanding that if you don't know from whence you have come, then it is very hard to understand where you are, let alone where you might want to be. And so people who are, are committed to uh, a multiracial democratic society are understanding the importance of historical uh, knowledge in terms of being able to locate ourselves in that unfolding story. Also, um, we see now in the South, we've got a senator uh, in the Senate race in North Carolina, we've got Sherry Beasley, an African-American woman uh, running for the Senate. We've got Stacey Abrams running for governor in Georgia and Val Demings for Congress in Florida and a host of other uh, African-American candidates on the ballot in North Carolina in these decisive elections. And this has to be understood as part of the on, ongoing and unfolding struggle that for a full and uh, multiracial democracy in this country. So uh, it's important, I think, that we uh, remember to turn out uh, and, and to stand in this stream of, of uh, people who are committed 
to a vibrant multiracial democracy. So I would add to that, you know, where Tim uh, ended. Um, you know, when we look at what was going on in the late 1930s, you know, the 1940s going into the 1950s, you know, one could say clearly and definitively that democracy was on the ballot. Um, uh, you know, and so to speak. And clearly today, I think one could just as strongly make the argument that democracy is on the ballot. And when I think about, oh my God, it's overwhelming to imagine uh, the, the, the horror, the fear, the humiliation, uh, the degradation that these courageous men and women who served and sought to serve and fought to serve in World War II so that we could enjoy you know, the liberties, the freedom to do the very things that you're supposed to be able to enjoy in a free and democratic society. They risked their lives. Um, and so the importance of exercising the franchise and your right to vote, you know, to me, uh, it's just as clearly important and significant now uh, as it as it was then. So I think there is a through line uh, between the then and the now. Um, and you know, the the other thing is that I would mention that's related to this. You know, two years before uh, Private Spicely was killed, his brother. Robert Spicely, who was uh, an instructor or was on the staff at Tuskegee Institute, um, came here to Durham, to North Carolina Central University, along with a number of other uh, uh, Black leaders from across the nation to address at that time issues of, of race and racism and the right to vote and the right to be able to enjoy the fruits of your labor right here at North Carolina Central University. And out of that came what's called the Durham Manifesto. And I think about Robert Spicely having no thought or idea that two years later, he would be coming back to Durham to seek justice for uh, his brother, Booker Spicely, uh, who was shot and killed in the name of, of white supremacy. And I also think about Tuskegee Institute and the Tuskegee Airmen and um, Colonel Benjamin Davis. And here again, you have these honorable men fighting for the right to fight. Uh, and that was an effort that didn't succeed right away. I think ultimately they were allowed to fight because at some point the government realized that they needed them if they were gonna win this war. I mean, the thing that hasn't been said, I think that needs to be said is that there are a number of white folk and I don't mean just, you know, poor dirt scrabble white folk, but white folk in positions of influence and power who were more comfortable 
with protecting white supremacy than they were with winning the war. In other words, they were willing to sacrifice democracy and winning the war on the altar of making sure Jim Crow segregation maintained. That's how horrible. And that's, that was the situation that was being addressed and dealt with during World War II. Um, James, you mentioned um, Private Spicely's brother. Have you been in contact with his family as you all kind of undergo the efforts of the committee? And also, how might individuals um, or organizations get involved if they are interested? We've got a, a, just a couple minutes left. So the short answer to your question is yes, have been uh, in communication uh, both by way of email and by way of telephone with uh, two uh, uh, family members of um, Private Spicely and keep them uh, apprised of our efforts and seek their thoughts about what we're doing and what we should be doing. Um, and, um, so uh, in terms of uh, how people could support or be involved, we don't, we don't have a, a, a website or anything like that, but you know, if people want to, uh, to contact me, uh, I'm, I'm certainly happy uh, to, to do that. Uh, and we can give you know, more thought to how people can support and, and be involved and we would welcome hearing uh, from people as we go about doing this work. We have really just begun. And so even though I feel good about the fact that we've got the historical marker application done, that is the beginning, I think, of the work that we're gonna ultimately do as it relates to uh, this uh, tragedy. Well, excellent. We are unfortunately out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, Attorney James Williams, former public defender in Orange and Chatham counties, and he chairs the Booker Spicely Committee that is promoting the placement of a public monument in his honor here in Durham. Also serving on that committee and the guest with us this evening is Dr. Timothy Tyson. He is an esteemed author, researcher, historian, and senior professor at the Duke University Center for Documentary Studies. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at Legal Eagle Review at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.